So we're going to try to make a quick run-through of the Megillah um, using the, the, the approach of the Vilna Gain. And what's unique about the approach of the Vilna Gain is that he tries to demonstrate how literally every Pasuk of the Megillah played a part in the nace that happened. He tries to demonstrate how from the beginning of the story, and that's why the essentially in the first two prakam of the Megillah, he really says a lot of chidushim, just demonstrating how every aspect of what happened before Haman even rose to power was all a part of the preparation that HaKadosh Baruch was putting into place to see to it that the Nase of Purim can actually occur. And it's fascinating. <clears throat> the, we'll begin with right in the beginning, <clears throat> second Pasuk of the Megillah, Right? In those days, when Achashverosh was sitting on his throne, which was in Shushan Habira. So he explains that, you, really the language of the Pasuk indicates this, was that he was sitting in his Kisa Malchusa that was in Shushan Habira, indicates that that wasn't the typical place or the normal place for him to really be. And he explains, and this is really Midrashim, that Achashverosh had, as everybody's familiar with, had requested that the throw, a replica be made of the throne of Shlom HaMelech. This is a thing in those days. Uh, if you wanted a you know, world dominion, was like that was the, the biggest achievement of a, of a ruler. He ruled over the whole, the, the whole civilized world. And the first person to achieve that, the world dominion, was Shlom HaMelech. And he ruled over the civilized world in a way that was never, never replicated afterwards. No one, no one was able to achieve the level of control that Shlomo HaMelech achieved. Shlomo HaMelech ruled over the world. He ruled over the upper worlds, also the spiritual worlds. When the Gemara lists out the people that achieved world dominion, they put Shlomo HaMelech into league unto himself. So all the kings that followed that tried to kind of become as mighty as Shlomo HaMelech so they wanted to like live up to his name. So part of the thing was that Shlomo Melch had this tremendous throne. And uh, if you could sit on that throne, then you made it. And famously, Pare tried to do that, and he was knocked off. So Akash wasn't even going to try. So instead, he was going to make a knockoff. He was going to make a cheap knockoff, make his own. And then this way, he'll, you know, he figured that'll, do, that'll be good enough. So he built this throne, and he had it built in Shushat. Now, really, the kingdom was in Babel because that's where Nebuchadnezzar was, and that's where all the, all the kings that reigned after Nebuchadnezzar, their, their capital city was in Babel. But he had the artisans, the artisans lived in Shushan, so that's where they fashioned the throne. Once they fashioned the throne, it was too big to be transported. So he moved his whole capital city over to Shushan. It began with him. That's, began right then. He transferred his capital city to Shushan. He built a palace there, and everything changed. Now the Gra explains that this was the, the the point of this was because Mordechai was already there. So in order for the nace to happen, Mordechai had to be there. So Hakadosh had Achashverosh move to Shushan <laughs> rather than have Mordechai move to to Babel. That was the that 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 was the purpose of right, right away in the second pasuk in the Megillah. It was already putting things into place that Achashverosh should be where Hashem wanted him to be, where Hashem needed him to be, so that Mordechai could be there. Now, why was it so important? I mean, why couldn't Mordechai move? So simply, you could say that why should the tzaddik have to move? Achashverosh <laughs> and the whole kingdom and the palace and and the whole, the whole government move. That's one way you could look at it. Also, probably it means because. If Mordechai was in Shushan and he had been there for quite a while because he had gone into Golos together with Yechania, which was 18 years before Golos bubble began. So he had been already there for, I don't know, about this point, about 60, 70 years. So he had established himself in Shushan. He had, a, he had influence there. He was, the, he was the, the person who was the accepted Talmud Chacham Tzadik Gadol Hadar over all the Jews in Shushan. And he, I imagine he had influence with the non-Jews as well. So, and we kind of see that because afterwards Achashverosh appoints him to some kind of position in his cabinet, right? Mordechai Yeshev B'Shar means he was appointed to some position in the king's court. And Achashverosh didn't know yet that he had any connection to Esther. So clearly he appointed him because he was an important person. He was, you know, the representative of the Jews. So him being in Shushan was important. 
Mordechai had a position over there in Shushan, so Achishverosh needed to be transferred into Shushan in order to be able to cater to Mordechai. That's the first thing the Gra says. Amazing thing. <clears throat> and if you think about it, this is, this is um, HaKadosh Baruch Hu putting things into place before Klai Yisrael even did that Vera that was going to make them, get them into trouble, right? They hadn't even partaken of this feast yet. So, I mean, the original Vera of bowing down to the idol of Muchanetsa, they did, but this, the final, that didn't even happen yet. And already HaKadosh Baruch Hu was, was manipulating events so that that Yeshua should be able to take place when we needed it. So now, the next thing that happens in the Megillah is Achashverosh wants to establish some political influence. And what he does is he makes two, makes two, two mishtas, two, two feasts. One he makes is a 180-day feast. The 180-day feast is for the 180-day feast is for the whole, his whole dominion, for the lords and the noblemen from all 127 um, countries. And then he makes a seven-day feast for the people in Shushan. Now, Shushan, he had just moved to, right? So he, he needed to garner support, political support, for the people that were living in Shushan. But the way he decided to do it was first to appease all the noblemen of all his 180 countries, and then to address the people locally. And the Gemara has a machlekes, whether this was astute um, political approach, or this was foolish. So some say that it's smart to first deal with all the the, the outside influences and then, you know, because you could always talk to the people around you, you could always deal with the locals. And the other, the Gemara says, on the other hand, no, you know, the, your only ally, allies are the people around you. You should have, he should have first made sure to be, to, that they're on his team before appeasing all the people in the other uh, kingdoms. So, the Gemara says, is foreign policy, domestic policy, basically. <laughs> you know, which one, which one's more important? And uh, so regardless, that's what he was doing. So he was making, he was making this whole, these, all these parties for that purpose to, to, to establish influence. And as, since he was doing that, he, he, the, the way these parties went were different than the way you know, royal parties generally took, worked, where there was very strict protocol. Uh, you know, how you had to respect the king and what you could do and what you couldn't do. And you had to like, you know... You had to live up to the standards. Whereas here, he said, he had the opposite idea. He said, you know what, on the contrary, what we're going to do is we're just going to try to make everybody happy. And we're going to <coughs> serve, you know, they don't have to follow the rules of drinking wine. They don't have to follow the, drool, the rules of making a toast. They don't have to follow the rules of dress. As you want, that's what we're happening. And the point was, in order to establish his, his political influence. Now, <coughs> This is the simple understanding which the Gemara explains of what was going on. Then the Gemara says there was something deeper going on as well. He, he threw this party at this particular point because according to his calculation, Gaul's bubble should have ended. All the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, all the kings that after the Harbin Besamekdash realized that their extent of their power, the extent of their influence is predicated on the fact that the Jews are subjugated under them. As long as they have control over the Jews, that's how long they're powerful. Once that they go out, you know, they, leave, they, they, they can't dominate the Jews anymore, they're going to lose their power. And each one of them successively tried to make a calculation of when Gaul's bubble should be over, and they knew it was going to be 70 years. And if 70 years passed and a Baruch didn't take Chal Yisrael out of Gaul, that means he forgot about them, doesn't care about them, and you know, then they're made it, then they're solid. And he made this, this calculation over here, Achashverosh, and according to his calculation, Gaul's bubble should have ended now. Uh, the Gemara goes through, everybody made this cheshbon, everybody seemed to get it wrong. Vuchanetzer um, made one cheshbon, he got it wrong. Balshetzer made a cheshbon, he got it wrong. Achashverosh uh, made a cheshbon, he got it wrong. Even Daniel made a cheshbon, and he got it wrong. So everybody, there was a lot of different ways to interpret what Yirmeh Hanavi had said, that it would be 70 years. It's a lot of different places it could have started from. And everybody was assuming it would it started from earlier, and in the truth, it started from the latest possible time. So there, the, he threw the feast because he thought it was over. And the purpose of this feast, was, feast, according to the Gemara, was to demoralize the Jews and to convince them that, you know, throw in the towel, it's all over for you guys. You're here to stay. And he, according to Medrash, when he made this whole party with everything that was there, he told Chal Yisrael, do you think your God can make anything like this? Uh, you're expecting a final redemption, do you think it'll be anything nearly as good as this? And uh, they told him back, 
uh, no one can even picture what a Kaddish Baruch was going to make. But you see, he, his purpose was to try to make them lose hope. And that's why it wasn't just when Mordechai was so insistent that no one attends this party that you know, they shouldn't be eating together with non-Jews and, and all the other reasons, which are all true, but there was, it was much deeper than that. This was a tremendous chil Hashem to participate in this party because the party was there for the purpose to demonstrate that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had given up on you. And now you're my subjects, and let's party. So that, that, attending that party would be uh, affirming that. <clears throat> so at this point, we are introduced to Vashti in the, in the Megillah. So Vashti was royal blood. She was the only surviving granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar his son, Balshetzer, took over, then Balshetzer was killed out by the Persians. They killed out, obviously, all his lineage, because that's what you do. When you kill a king, you wipe out his whole, his whole bloodline because you don't want anybody you know, coming back to try to take back the, the kingdom. She was spared. She was a little girl at the time, and she was spared for, for whatever reason. And Ahasuerus took her as a wife, and this was very important for him because he was not of royal lineage. He did not have any royal blood. He had taken over the kingdom, either by force or through wealth, different shittas in the Gemara, and he desperately needed uh, that kind of validation. He needed the valid- to, be, to be validated that he was really worthy of being a king. So having Vashti as a queen was of utmost importance to him. And that being the case, under no circumstance would, would he really allow anything to happen to her. And we see that as this story goes on, and he gets so angry at her, we'll see that he still really wanted to find a way to work this out because he did not want to lose her because she was really his only tie to any kind of royal blood. But she had to go because we needed room for Esther. So she had to go. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu starts to manipulate these events that that should happen as well. She also, designed, she also deserved to die for her cruelty as we know, you know it's famous, the Gemara says that she would torture Jewish women, force them to work on Shabbos and unclothed. She would demoralize them, dehumanize them. So she, she was, it was coming to her, <laughs> regardless. But she needed to go. She needed to go. Esther had to come in. So we know Achishverosh demanded her to, to come and uh, come into, in, into the men's ballroom. Now, the, the Gemara explains that there was no real reason why there should have been a woman's feast. Um, you know, Shushan and Persia was not a very emancipated country. It isn't even today, so it certainly wasn't then. And um, it wasn't like they were trying to cater to the women. Uh, Vashti went out of her, out of the norm to create this Gam Vashti Hamalka Asta Mishdei Nashim. It was an unusual thing. Pasik, um, Pasik test. Gam Vashti Hamalka Asta Mishdei Nashim Beis Hamalka Zashalach Ashamalach Achatresh. Now, so not only was it unusual that she made a party for the women, but it was also unusual where she made it. She made it in the Beis HaMalchus, which was adjacent to the hall of the men. And the Gemara says that this was Prisus. She was doing this really because she, she uh, wanted to expose the, expose the women to the men. That was her underlying, underlying thought process. So the men heard the women, and as a result, they were talking about women, they started arguing about women, and Ahasuerus wanted to demonstrate that he is the most beautiful and most important wife of all, so he demanded that Abashti come in, unclothed, in front of a ballroom full of hundreds and thousands of drunken men. Now we would say, okay, you don't need too much reason to refuse to do that, right? I mean, who would do that? Even today, who would do such a thing? But the Gemara says, why did she refuse? The Gemara just can't, think, can't figure it out. She was a prutza, the Gemara says. She would have wanted to do this. It's just, when you, the Gemara asks it in all simple, simplicity. It's, it's just amazing to, stay, to take a step back. The Gemara says, why would she not come? Can't figure out a reason. She has to go unclothed in front of a whole ballroom of drunken men. Yeah, why would she not do that? So the Gemara says the only possible reason why she didn't do that was because Amal came and struck her with tzaras. She had leprosy uh, just then. Or she grew a tail. So she was unpresentable. <laughs> so she couldn't go. Otherwise, she would have gone. So it just, it just boggles the mind as to the level of depravity that the Gemara assumes that they had with such a pashtus that the Gemara just can't understand why, why she wouldn't go. So she can't go. And then when she's pressured by Ahasuerus, she says to him, she insults him in front of his guards, and she says, you know, some nasty things, that you're just a stable boy. And uh, that, that, that's very, that bothers him a lot. And the, the, the Gra just explains, if you look at the Pasuk, 
um, Pasuk Yud Beis, but Tamoyan Hamalka Vashti Lava Bidvar Amelach. So the, here, he keeps on switching back and forth. Vashti Hamalka, Hamalka Vashti, Vashti Hamalka. He says, whenever it says Hamalka first, it's coming to emphasize the fact that she was, or whoever is mentioning her in that context, was focusing on the fact that she was of royal blood. So Hamalka Vashti, she was now communicating to Achashverosh, just an arm from royal blood. And you're a nobody. So the queen Vashti said, she, I'm not going to come. And he got very angry. And his anger burnt within him. So the Gro explains because she refused to come. And that, every, that was public. Everybody saw that. So that's But she also sent him a message. And she called him a stable boy. And she made fun of him that he couldn't hold his wine. Now, that the guards heard, but obviously Achashverosh is not going to tell everybody else about that. So he couldn't share that. So that was Hamasei Bar Abay. That part of it, <clears throat> that anger was burning inside of him. Right? So it was repressed anger. Right? A, that's the worst thing. So at that point, he calls, he convenes a court. <clears throat> and he calls a court together to see what to do. Now, why does he need a court? Why doesn't he just... Why doesn't he just make this judgment on his own? So here the grow again steps in and explains that this is the current rule, the rule of law in Shushan was that a king could cast judgment on whatever they want, but not on, on the, you know, from the noblemen or from the higher, uh, the, the people who were higher up in the kingdom, if it's something personal. Which means that if he had a, uh, something personal between him and a nobleman, that had to go to the courts. He couldn't judge, educate that himself, which made sense. It was a protection. They had put that into place so that you know, there'd be some safety for the nobleman. Otherwise, they're all at the king's mercy. So he had to call this court together. But even when he does call this court together, the Grah explains there's really two kinds of courts he could have called. There was one court that would just you know, pass judgment depending on whatever, whatever the law dictates. But these people, they're yoyde ha'itim. Yedehaitim means that they were politically astute. They didn't just take into account the law, they also took into account the ramifications of what would happen, how it would affect the, the, the political scene. So he really wanted that because he understood that losing Vashti will have serious ramifications on his validity as a king, his worthiness as a king. He lost any connection to royal blood. He didn't want to get rid of her. So that's why he didn't convene the regular court. He can, this Pasigid Gimel, Vayemer Hamal Chachamim Yedehaitim. And then the next part of the Pasuk is, The, the Melech had to do this, because he had no choice, to present to the because it was a personal issue. So he, he was, had seven people were on this court, and one of them was a brand new, a brand new uh, um, judge who was number seven on the list. This number If he's number seven, that means he was the lowest, the least important, and the newest. Yet he speaks first. So he wanted to know what to do. And again, here, if you look in Pasuk Tezvav, he says, Kidos malasas bamalka vashti. Again, it says malka first, because again, he was appreciating the fact that she was a queen, and she was of royal blood, and he wanted that to be addressed. What can we do with the fact that she's a malka? I don't want her to be killed, because I need her. Now, Memuchan was Haman, as we know, and Memuchan and is about to make a suggestion, and, and the Gemara explains that Memuchan had some skin in the game here. He was married to Zeresh. Zeresh was more, um, more had, had more noble blood. She was also a lot smarter than him. He, Haman, up till this point, when he got appointed in this position, he had the very, um, uh, the, the, the very chash uh, profession of being a barber. For 25 years, he was a barber, and some, not even at the barber in the capital city of Shushan, he was a barber in a village. So he's a village barber. And through the way the Grog explains is that through Zeresh's wisdom, she got him into politics and she got him appointed into this position as a judge. And he, as is typical of people with his kind of character traits, resented her for that, even though she got him into this position, but he owed too much to her. And she refused to speak his language. She basically, she dominated so he needed to change some laws to simply give him the power to dominate over her. So he suggests, according to the Groh explains, he suggests a radical change of the whole law of the land. And his suggestion is, is that let's change the way these things works, that the king doesn't need to consult with a with a based in anymore, with a, uh, with a court, in order to educate what is personal. No, he should now have the ability to do it on his own. 
he should not need to come on to the opinion of the judges. He can make that decision on his own. <clears throat> and he explains the, the necessity of it. In his the way he the way he explains this in Pasik Yutes, if the Malach likes this idea, he will uh, write a royal edict, and this will be written in Dase Paras and and will not we can't change this uh, this law. that Vashti didn't want to come. So he explains it doesn't make sense. You don't have to make a law that Vashti didn't want to come. That's a very specific instance. You don't have to change a law for that, right? Just to say that Vashti didn't come and she's going to get killed, no need to write a new law. He explains that's not what was, that wasn't the new law. The new law was that at this juncture, when Vashti refused to come before Ahasuerus, the law will get changed, and now Ahasuerus can actually decide on that himself. He doesn't need to come on to the, the court. And Everybody liked this idea. He says that was the biggest nice. They were crazy. They were giving up their only protection. The only thing that, the only leverage they had to protect themselves against the king's wrath if he decides from one day to the next that he doesn't like a nobleman was the fact that they had put this protection into place, that he has, can't decide something personal on his own. And yet they just, they all just, just they sign on to this one. And he says this was also at Hashem. It's because Baruch was manipulating things and he says the purpose was which was ironic because it was Mamucha and Haman who had put this into place, was that later, when Ahasuerus gets mad at Haman, if he would have had to consult his court, of course they would have found a way to, you know, to, 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 <coughs> to, 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 to uh, exonerate him, and he wouldn't have gotten killed. But instead, in the fit of anger, he was able to just order him dead, even though it was something personal, because Mamucha himself had already given him that power. So that was also another aspect that had to be put into place. Another aspect of the Nais, the Gemara explains, is that they sent out these letters, which was the, the part that Haman really wanted, that in order that we don't have a repetition of Vashti, all women are obligated to speak the language of their husbands. So the Gemara says that when this letter went out to all the, the kingdoms, they, everybody laughed. They said, Achashverosh is having Shalom Bayez problems, he's henpecked, like, boy, who, why do you need to make an edict? Of course, everybody, you know, the, the man is going to rule the house, I mean, especially in those days. And they, they, they made a mockery of it. And as a result, when Haman sent out his letters later that all the Jews should be wiped out, generally, when you know, non-Jews get that kind of uh, message, it's Zerizim Magdim Lemitzvah. They weren't going to wait a whole year till Yud Gimel Adah to start killing out Jews. They would have started already. But they were worried about the veracity of the letter because they had seen that previous letter and they said, that didn't make any sense. There's no way that could have come from Achashverosh. So then they doubted this one as well. So they needed to know for sure that it was true. That's why there was time to get the new letters in before any action was taken. So that's another thing he explains. <clears throat> the Gemara explains. <clears throat> so we've taken the whole first paragraph of the Megillah. Every aspect of it was to put different things into place. So again, that the Yeshua could eventually happen. Perak Bayes now is going to address how Esther gets put into position. So first of all, anybody... A little student of history, you know, anything, right, is all royal marriages, maybe except uh, recent history, but all royal marriages, when royalty met some, something, were all arranged marriages. You, all, you got married to someone that gave you power. You married this king's niece or that king's daughter or this king's sister. That is the way it worked, because it was all about, you know, just, just making more, establishing your, your rule even more. And he needs a new wife, and his original wife was Vashti, who had gave, given, given him some validity. So if he needed a new wife, he should have married the king of Mada, his sister or daughter, or, or, or the, you know, the king of Babel, something. His, he gets the suggestion, makes a beauty pageant. It, it's, it's ridiculous. So the, the way the Brevda explains this, <clears throat> Zetzal, he says, well, look who gave him the suggestion. Nari HaMelech Mesharsav. Nari HaMelech Mesharsav are his servants, the Nari HaMelech. Those are the butlers, the shushine, the janitors. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of suggestion you're going to get from them. <laughs> what do you think? They're, they're not, they, they're not uh, royal advisors. They don't care about politics. They say, okay, I yeah, get the most beautiful wife. And he listens to them, which is also doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it, 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 it's, it's possibly the most ridiculous decision he made in the whole Megillah. It never worked, ever. There was no royal marriage that was just done because you want this particular woman. They always did it because to, 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 to give themselves more power. And he had, you know, he had no lack of wives, he just needed a beautiful wife. He had many wives. He had all kinds of concubines. He had a lot of different ways to satisfy his, uh, his tithes. 
the, the royal wife, the queen, was going to be someone that gives him some power. But yet, no, 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 make a beauty pageant, and he listens. So, <clears throat> as a result, Esther is, is chosen. And that itself, also, as we know, is a big nace, because the, the Gemara says, the Gemara has a disagreement whether she was beautiful or not. So, according to one opinion, she was one of the most beautiful women in the world, and according to others, she was not. So, if she was not, it was certainly a nace. But regardless, she was not a young woman. There's nothing to talk about. No way she could have been a young woman. Because Mordechai, as we said, went into Gaulus, as the Megillah says, he went to Gaulus with Yechania. Yechania went into Gaulus 18 years before Gaulus Babel began. And this was Achashverosh's cheshben. He thought that Gaulus Babel ended now. It was 12 years before Gaulus Babel actually ended. So if you do the math, Mordechai had gone into Gaulus some 60 years previously. Now, before he went into Gaulus, he was already a member of Sanhedrin. Right? So even though, let's say, he was a huge prodigy, and he became a member of Sanhedrin at 20, which is unlikely. So he was 80, 90. He was an old man. And he, Esther was his wife. She married him, and she was his cousin, first cousin. So she couldn't have been that much younger than him. 30 years younger than him? So she was 50 <laughs> or 60. She was an old woman. And Ahasuerus chose her. So that was another aspect of the nace. But that, the, the Pasuk also makes it clear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was manipulating this. You don't need any Vodnagayim. You see, as soon as she came, Hagai loved her, and and he catered to her ever design, and he pushed her ahead of the line. So we, we already see, in the Pesukim itself make it clear that every aspect of how this worked, how this went down, was, was, was the Atas Hashem to make sure that she gets chosen. And indeed, she gets, she gets chosen even though she does absolutely nothing. She does the least possible to become Achashverosh's wife, because she has obviously no, no interest in doing so. And uh, you think a little bit about it, I spoke about this a little bit last night, but uh, you just think of what a um, tremendous disaster this was for Esther, the fact that she had to end up marrying Achashverosh. You just think of every aspect of it. She is marrying someone that was ready to sell out the whole Jewish nation, men, women, and children, and kill all of them. It was as bad as Hitler. So she had to be married to Hitler and make believe she wanted to be married to him at the pain of death. She had to live with him. He was a Russia. He was a guy. He was a disgusting person, terrible tar- character traits, and a murderer. And on to top it all off, she also had a husband. She was married to Mordechai. So this was the... And she had to endure this for years. This, this, you know, this faking and this, this double life to the person that she detested. Now, she was even a little punished. She called him a Kalev in one of her, in, in, in the Kaili Kaili. And then she was punished for that, that it wasn't respectful. She should have referred to so Then she rephrased it. But that you get a little idea of how she looked at him. And rightfully so. And, and then she had to live with him. So she was definitely not interested in this going through. And then she gets, she becomes his, she eventually becomes his wife and she's chosen. Now, at... At this point, there is uh, an interesting thing that happens, and that is that Ahasuerus wants to know if she is what her lineage is, and she refuses to tell. And Ahasuerus does everything in his power to find out. He tries to, he throws a huge feast in her honor, just for the purpose of appeasing her, as Umar says. He... Um, he gives all 127 nations that are under his command, he gives them a break from taxes because he thinks, you know, one of them must be her nation. So I'll give them all a break from taxes just to demonstrate to her, you know, how important it is to me who, who she is. So he's taking a huge financial loss here on her behalf. That puts a tremendous pressure on her, but she doesn't break. She won't say who, who she's from. And, and the girl points out that in the end of the Megillah, all the way in the end, if you take a look at the very last parak, it says... Ahasuerush instituted a tax on the, on the land and on the, the islands that were under his dominion. It's like, who cares? Why is this even in the Megillah? I mean, Esther is writing this Megillah, right? Why is this even relevant? So he put him at tax. Very nice. <laughs> New taxes. What, what difference did it make? So he explains. The difference was because now he knew where Esther was from. So he said, okay, I don't have to give off taxes anymore. <laughs> She's not from any of these 127 nations. So he reinstituted the taxes. Now that he had found out where she was from. And he, he points out that Mas, Mem Samach is Gematria 100, and Ie, 
is Gematria 27, VEA is Gematria 27, together 127 Medinas. He reinstituted the tax over all 127 nations that were under his control, 100 of them which were on the land, and 27 of them which were islands. So he's putting tremendous pressure upon her to reveal where she's from. And she refuses. Why? Because Mordechai told her not to. Why did Mordechai tell her not to? We don't even know. No one knows why. The original reason was, his, the thought process was that if she doesn't reveal that she herself was royal lineage, then he won't, there'll be less chance that he'll want her. But it's that, that boat has sailed. She has already chosen her. The next thought was that maybe he'll find out the fact that she had originally refused and he'll, be willing, wanting, he'll want to take revenge. That also wasn't the case. So really, none of the simple reasons applied. The only reason, possibly, that Mordechai wanted her to continue keeping this a secret was because he felt with Ruach HaKadosh that it was important. Which it ended up being, right? That she revealed it just at the perfect time when it was to be able to use to her best advantage. So he, but he didn't know that. He felt that with Ruach HaKadosh. So he came to Esther and he says, listen, I don't know why, but I think this is the right thing for you to do. And she follows him. And she's under tremendous pressure to reveal this. But she follows him and she refuses to break. And that's a tremendous testimony to Esther's Amunus Chachamim. Because that's all it was. There was nothing logical here. It's, there, none of the logic applied. The Guru explains that. None of the original logic applied. And it was done simply because Mordechai Tzivullah. Mordechai said, this is what you got to do. And she had total Amunus Chachamim and she followed him. Which is going to be the message that the Megillah is going to, to be giving us throughout the rest of the Megillah. Mordechai following what Esther says when she, she says a Baruch HaKadosh. Klai Yisrael following what Mordechai says and Esther says to do when they tell them Baruch HaKadosh. And that was going to be the Tikkun for the fact that they didn't listen originally when Mordechai told them not to go and participate in the Suda of Achashverosh. <clears throat> so now everything, almost everything is in place. We have the, the edict has been changed, the rule of the land has been changed, Haman's Haman will eventually be able to get killed. Esther, Vashti is out, Esther is in position, and now the last little part has to get into place, and that is Mordechai has to have done something good enough to force the king to have to repay him later on. So that's when Bigson and Seresh make this plot. Mordechai happens to be in the right position at the right time to hear them plotting. They make the mistake of thinking he doesn't speak their language, and then he tells Esther, and Esther remembers to make sure that the king records it in the name of Mordechai, an unknown, previously unknown person. He makes, she makes sure that he records it, that he was the one that actually gave the information to her, and that was what brought eventually Yeshua, someone who says something in the name of the, of the real source, maybe Yeshua And this was the last part of the Yeshua. Everything was in place. Paragimel, now Haman can come to power. But that wasn't going to happen before everything was put into place. Now, why did Haman get into power? Why was Haman given, why was he elevated? So the Grah explains, it's very simple, because he did this tremendous favor for Achashverosh. He changed the rule of the land and he made him so much more powerful. He made him the person that can, you know, had, no one has any power over him anymore. He has absolutely no, 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 no restraints, no checks and balances. So therefore he elevated him. And that happened a little while ago. But Haman wasn't put into power until all these other things were worked out. Once the Yeshua was worked out, so now Haman gets elevated. Haman gets elevated, and he clearly wants that everybody should bow down to him. Again, take a minute to pause and think about you know, this text, textbook Russia, but just not just the textbook Russia, the level of, um, of, de- you know, of depravity that he needed everybody to bow down to him. That's something you do to a king. You bow down to a king. You don't bow down to one of his noblemen. But he wanted it, and Nachashverosh appeased him and, and, and let him have it. And, and through the Megillah also you see that, that really he had his eyes on the throne. He, later on, he, you know, when he thinks Nachashverosh is talking about him, he says, can you know, let me wear the king's clothing and the king's horse. That was the only thing he didn't have. He was very powerful. He was second in command to the king. He was enormously wealthy. He had tremendous influence. The only thing he didn't have was the throne. And that irked him. <laughs> he, he wanted that. Or at least he wanted as much of it as he could get. So he want, he, this is what he wants. <clears throat> Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. Why does Mordechai refuse to bow down to Haman? Actually, the Megillah says, take a look in uh, this is page 656. 
Pasuk Dalad. This is a Perik, Perik Yom Pasuk Dalad. He Ka'amram Elav Yom B'Yom, and the kings, uh, the rest of the king's noblemen were talking to him and, and berating him. And he wasn't listening to them. They told Haman to see if Mordechai would be able to stand up to Haman. Because Mordechai told him that he is a Yehudi. That's the reason why he didn't bow down. Yehudi is used as a term, someone who's kaifer babay dezar. Bisya baspare. Her name in Dibri Hayamim is changed to Yehudiya. Her name is changed to Yehudiya because she was kaifer babay dezar. That's the name Yehudi implies. Yehudis, Yehudi is a name of someone who had the strength to stand up and not bow down, not, not, not sub, submit to idols. So that's why he didn't bow down. Why was Haman an Avedizar? Haman was an Avedizar. He just wanted to be a powerful person. You bow down to a king, right? Why can't you bow down to, to Haman? So the Gemara says that uh, he, either he made himself into an idol, he, treated, he considered himself an idol, or he wore idols on his, uh, on his body, or he had it... Uh, Maybe he had it tattooed. So there was a few different idols involved in bowing down to him, which was all part of him, you know, putting, putting his power forward. So therefore, it was not an option. Mordechai could not bow down to him. Interestingly, the Grah points out is that Haman would not have noticed. Haman didn't walk no, looking down. Haman had his nose in the air. He, would, he totally would not have noticed that Mordechai wasn't bowing down. The other, king, the other servants pointed it out to Haman, because they had no love for Mordechai, they had no love for Jews. They were kind of all in the same boat over here. They were, they were all anti-Semites. <clears throat> now, Haman loses it, and he decides that it's not just about Mordechai, it's about the old, uh, old other Jews, and he wants to wipe out all the other Jews. He goes to Achashverosh, successfully convinces Achashverosh. Sigmar goes through the whole discussion that they have, how Achashverosh really doesn't want to do it, he's nervous, he knows many kings have fallen to this trap before, etc., etc., he wins. And Achashverosh takes off his ring, gives it to, to Haman, and the decree is ready in place. Now, at this point, Mordechai finds out about it, and you think, Mordechai, you have an ace in the hole. You have Esther in perfect position in the, in the palace. Does, Ham, does Mordechai go to Esther? No. She approaches him before he approaches her. That's not what he does. That's not the first line of defense. Puts on sackcloth, puts Ephraim on his head, puts ashes on his head, and he starts crying and he starts davening. And that's a tremendous lesson. And that's again repeated throughout the Megillah. At no point did they want anybody to get it confused what the real Heshtadlis here is. He was not even, didn't have a single moment where he thought that Esther was the one that was going to bring the Yeshua. And not, not a second. He went straight away to davening and sackcloth and, and, and doing tshuva. When Esther calls him in, Esther finds out what happened. She calls him in, she says, take off your sackcloth so we can speak face to face. He refuses. Why does he refuse? I mean, that's the logical thing to do. Why do you have to speak through a messenger? And that was dangerous. Haman found out about it. He killed the messenger. There, it, it, was, it wasn't the ideal way to communicate. He refused to take off a sackcloth for even a second. This is, this is what's going to help. We can talk. You know, I'll let you know what I want from you. But this is, I'm not taking off the sackcloth. That's the real thing that's going to help us over here. He refused to take it off even for a moment. And it's just so, just like so far from the way we would think. So, so distant. <clears throat> and the Rebravda explains that if you look at the Psukim, it's just a nice, a nice thought. Um, this is in Parak Dalad, so it's the second column on page 656. It says that Mordechai Yoda is Kalashanasa. He found out everything that happened. Vayikra Mordechai is Begadav. He tore his clothing. He put on a sackcloth. He put on ashes. And he, uh, he called out, Vayabad Lafnei Sharamelach. And he came up to the, the, the Sharamelach, which is where he usually was. And he couldn't go any further. Now, Really, what should really follow is Pasik Dalit, which is Tavoyna Naris Esther, sorry, Sal, that Esther's uh, servants came and told her what happened. But really, the, the, the Megillah then interjects with this Pasik, Pasik Gimel. Wherever anybody heard about this uh, edict of the king, it was a very uh, sad time for all the Jews. They all put on sackcloth and they all put on ashes. So he explains, or Rebbe explains that. that the, it really was very difficult for Mordechai to be able to communicate with all 127 Medinas to encourage them to do tshuva, to get them into the, the mode that was necessary to be able to change this decree. There's no way he could do that. There's no way he could communicate to them, no way he could get the message out to them. In addition, he explains that, the, this the Gra explains, is that when Haman sent out his original decree, 
it was not made clear so much who has to kill who. He sent out to the noblemen of each city, so you look at the psukim, we can go through them, but the noblemen to each, of each city, the one that the lords in charge of each, uh, each particular region, were no, let known exactly what's going to happen. But the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the kingdom were just said, get ready, there's going to be a massacre on the 13th of Adar, and you know, we'll let you know the details uh, in, in, in advance when, when the time comes. So the only people who really knew were the noblemen, and they deliberately wanted to keep it secret so that the Jews shouldn't try to exert the political influence and power to try to change the, de- the, the decree. And all the noblemen were meant to keep it a secret. Now some of them leaked. Some of them were friendly to the Jews and they leaked, and that's how some of the Jews found out. But how could Choldin and Medina, how could everybody find out? So that was Shlokeder Chateva. That was also a nest that everybody found out. And Mordechai made this happen through he himself doing tshuva, he himself putting on sackcloth, and that made the first step of the nace, that everybody should find out one way or another so that everybody should start doing tshuva. He made that happen through his tremendous effort of doing tshuva. He started the process in Shemaim that everybody else found out and was able to do tshuva as well. So it's just very nice, it fits very nicely into how these, these psukim go. Now, Mordechai and Esther now have a, you know, a discussion, an argument, and it's very... This discussed in many Mepharshim, what exactly they were arguing about. Is it the right thing to go? Isn't it the right thing to go? Is this the right Ashtadlis or not? A lot of different Shatim. They have an argument, and in the end, Esther says, fine, I'm going to go. She then says, everybody has to fast three days and three nights. And these three days and three nights were Pesach. So that means no one's going to eat matzah. No one's going to eat matzah. It's this matzah, it's this mar. They were given bevatel mitzvah over these three days. So this took Ruach HaKadosh, which she had. And she didn't just say, Mordechai, is this a good idea? She says, she commanded Mordechai to do it, and Mordechai listened. She made a command, and everybody listened, everybody fasted. Again, she herself understood, this is the only way this is going to happen. This is the only way we're going to be successful. It's going to require tefillah, it's going to require tshuva, it's going to require fasting. Not at any point in the Megillah did anyone, her or Mordechai, or anybody have any thought that anything else was going to help. So much so, that when the Gemara says that she invited Haman, and the Gemara wants to know why. Why did she invite Haman? And the Gemara has 27 reasons why she invited Haman. Uh, or maybe 13. Yeah, like a huge number of reasons. And the Gemara then says that uh, Elio Navi met the Namura and he asked Elio which one was the real reason. And she said he, she had calculated all of them. So she had a tremendous amount of Cheshbonus why to invite Haman. But one of them was that she didn't want Kalal Yisrael to think, eh, we have our sister over there in the king's palace, we'll be fine. So she invited Haman to make everybody start doubting, oh, one second, what's going on over here? Why is she consorting with the en- enemy? And they would lose hope in her, and they would really start doubting. So even she, even when she was doing her establishment, she did everything she could so that no one will really rely on that. Because she realized that's the only way this is going to, this is the only way this Yeshua will happen. <clears throat> and at this point is when we see that the, all the davening, all the Tshuva started taking an effect because as Chazal started explaining us how one miracle happened after the next to ensure the success. She walks into Achashverosh, Achashverosh wants to kill her. And three Malachim show up. One Malach is there to stand her up because she's about to collapse. She had fasted three days and three nights. Another Malach was there to appease Achashverosh, to calm him down so that he could change his mind. And a third Malach was there to stretch the scepter that it touches Esther so she shouldn't get killed. So it required three Malachim. It's a big deal for Malach to come down here. It's not just a typical, you know, Shina Hatava. A Malach coming down is a much more open demonstration of a Kodesh Baruch getting involved. And this was because they had fasted three days and three nights, otherwise she would have died. She would have gotten killed, and probably she would have been happy to die at that point. <laughs> she was not interested in living any longer with Achashverosh. She would have been very happy to die, Kiddush Hashem. But that wasn't what was going to happen. So Hashem sent down these three malachim, and that's what saved her. She invites Achashverosh to a suda, she invites Haman to a suda, and she doesn't, she's not ready to reveal yet. The Gra explains she's looking for a sign. She needs a sign from Shemaim that she's doing the right thing. That sign obviously happens the ne- that, that night when Achashverosh commands Haman to lead Mordechai around on a horse. That's when she got her sign. But she wasn't going to do anything until she got a sign from Shemaim. So she invites him to one party. Has, she's, the sign didn't happen yet. She says, nah, I can't reveal anything yet. Next, tomorrow night, next party. Then that night Achashverosh can't sleep. Why can't he sleep? 
So the Gemara explains and the girl elaborates. She said, because he did not know what's going on over here. What is Esther so nervous about? What is she so upset about? She can't be anything that she wants because she's my queen. She has everything she wants. She's the most protected person in the world. There's nothing she could possibly want. She must want something for someone else. And if she's going through this effort and she's so nervous about it, she's going to ask something tremendous from me. Who knows about it? Why is no one telling me about this? And she invited Haman. Haman must be in cahoots with her. So, so I'm, I'm missing something and no one is telling me. No one seems to be on my side. He could not sleep because of this. So she said, he said, you know what? She, she, if she's going to ask something tremendous, it must be I owe something to someone because what other, what other power do I, will she have to ask? So he asks the, the Sefer Dibra Hayyamim and sure enough, he finds that Mordechai did something tremendous for him and never got paid back. So he says, okay, we have to take care of this as soon as possible so I can pull out the rug from under her feet. She's going to ask me something and she won't have anything to I already paid back. You know, Mordechai already gave him everything he deserves. And at this point, Haman comes and he wants to really say, you know, to hang Mordechai on a tree. And really, all the advisors, whoever was together with the king at that point, should have told Haman, bad idea, you know, go back home, bad time to be uh, saying anything about Mordechai. But no one does. And this Rebrevda has an explanation, it's a cute, this is his own idea. He says that, you know, who was around the king? Again, it was the same Nara Hamel Masharset, right? In the middle of the night, he doesn't have his advisors with him. He doesn't have his noblemen. He has his butlers, his, the guys who wash the floor, the guys who change the bed. That's who's there. And they're the people that are, that are telling him what to do. They resented Haman. Why? Because they had to keep him buying down to him. <laughs> it's very inconvenient. Every time he walks in and out, they're trying to do the job. They have to prostrate themselves on the floor. So they, 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 the, the Gemara says this. They, hate, they hated Mordechai, but they hated Haman even more. So they weren't going to tell Haman anything. They said, And he comes. So that's his, his idea, which is a nice, nice idea. In any case, you know, at this point, the, at this point the, we require some more malachim, as Chazal explained, that the person who was in charge of the Sefer Dibra Hayyamim was the son of Haman, and he wanted to erase everything that it said about Mordechai and the Malach rewrote it, he tried to turn the page, the Malach kept on turning it back. Again, more Malachim were being sent to just ensure that this goes through. At every step of the way, it, it shouldn't have happened. At every step of the way, it should have been stopped. Esther should have been killed by Achashverosh. Haman had so much influence in the palace, they should have worked it out that Mordechai should have not gotten, which would have happened if not for a Malach. He had his own son to be the scribe. He had all the people who were under his influence in the palace, which is typically what happened when someone was so powerful, you know, he kicked out everybody under him and made sure it's his people. Like, you know, every president does. You, 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 you put your people in. You don't, you don't have the, the previous, um, you know, administration's people in there. So everybody really was on his side. They were all his people. And the Malachim had to really work overtime to make sure that, that this actually goes through. <clears throat> at at uh, then, you know, the whole story with Mordechai going and leading, uh, being led by Haman. And the Gura says, beautiful pshat, we say in Shemana Asra, Mishan u Miftach Latzadikim. Kaddish Baruch Hu is a Mishan, and a Miftach. Mishan means something to lean on, and Miftach is, is something to be secure with, something we can depend on. And he explains that when Kaddish Baruch Hu expects us to have Betachan, he expects us to rely on him, but he doesn't expect us to have the ability to do that without him giving us some, something to know you know, that he's there for us. He gives us a mission. He gives us something to rely on. And he gives an example of this is Mordechai being led by Haman. He says, you know, the, the Yeshua wasn't about, quite there yet, and it required much more betachen, much more tefillah, much more tshuva of Kal Yisrael. But he wanted to encourage Kal Yisrael, and he wanted to demonstrate to Kal Yisrael that just hold on a little bit longer, keep it up, put in the, a little bit more effort, and then it's going to happen. And that mission was this event of Haman being le- uh, leading Mordechai, Haman being humiliated publicly in, st- in the street, having garbage thrown upon him, having his daughter die, a public humiliation. The purpose was so that Kal Yisrael will be a little bit more encouraged just to hold on a little bit longer. And he says, Akash Baruch always does this. Akash Baruch always gives a person some signs, some simmons, some, some demonstration that I'm here for you so that you'll have the strength to have the betachan, to, have, to rely on him to, till the to very end, to, to let the Yeshua truly happens. In the, in the bracha we say, Mishan Miftach Tzadikim. So now the second party, and again, you have to have a whole host of malachim to make sure that Haman gets killed, because Achishverosh is no interest in killing Haman. Haman is his greatest supporter and his greatest advisor. 
Esther says, you know, who is this person? Wants to kill, to kill, he wants to kill out my whole nation. Achishverosh, who is it? And she points, she's going to point. Now, the Gemara says she was about to point at Achishverosh, which is essentially the right thing, because he was actually the one who was <laughs> killing out everybody. He was, he was the king. Why would she do a stupid thing like that? So the Gemara says, because uh, Tzedekah, she, she, he, when, when she did things like that, her mind was totally davok in HaKadosh Baruch so she didn't like, she, she, she kind of lived in this world, but a person, and she was in Aviya, she was, she was a Baal's Ruch HaKadosh, her head was totally div- separated from the world. So she was talking, she was going to say the truth. So a Malach came and pushed her hand in the right direction. So that was the first Malach that came. Achashverosh gets angry, but Achashverosh wants to cool down. He's not, he wants to get over his anger, he knows he has a rage problem, he doesn't want to kill Haman. So he goes out into his garden, and then another host of Malachim come, and they start chopping down the trees and lie and say that Haman told us to do it. So this is Kaddish Baruch saying, you're not going to get over this. You're going to stay angry. So he goes back in, and at this point, he still doesn't want to kill Haman. And then another Malach comes and pushes Haman down on top of Esther. The Haman noifel al-mita ash noifel is a present tense, meaning he kept on trying to get up, and he kept on getting pushed down. He's noifel al-mita, he kept on falling. Another Malach came. And it's still not enough because Achishverosh is still not ready to kill him, even though he's very angry. And Pnei Haman Chafu, his his face already turned white, or his face got covered, meaning they like you know he fell out of favor. They covered it, but he still wasn't going to kill him. And they need Charvayna to come. Charvayna was either just a good old fashioned, you know, betrayer of Haman, uh, but according to the Medrash, it was Eliyahu Navi dressed up as Charvayna, who was one of Haman's confidants. So last Malach, final Malach to come in, to to you know to close the deal and to demonstrate that. Achashverosh, you know, Haman is, he's really not on your side. He himself was doing treason. He was trying to kill the one person that saved your life. And here he says, take a look at this Pasuk. It's uh, the end of Perik Zion. So this is on page 658, second column. Pasuk Tess. Top of the top of the page. Pasik Tes. Vayemer Charvayna Echem Menasarisim. So Charvayna, who was one of the servants of Pnei Hamelach, Gam, Hine Ha'eta Sheasa Haman. Here is the the take a look at the 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 eights that Haman erected. La Mardachai, Asher Diber Tayval Hamelach, who spoke nicely or good about the king. Right. So simply what this means is that Mardachai, right, spoke good things about the king. But it's a it's a little confusing way of talking because it doesn't really sound like that. Actually, what it sounds like is like this. This is the eights, the gallows that Haman made for Mordechai. That Haman said it would be better if I could hang the king on it. That's the simple reading of the words. That's the way it's. That's that's what it means, and which would kind of fit with Haman wanting to be king and wanting to take the throne. So he says it was Ben that those were the words that should come out of Charvayna's mouth, and that's what Achashverosh heard. That Haman was Haman preferred to have made this gallows for the king. So that's what finally sealed the deal. And that's when, uh, that's when um, Achashverosh made this psaq with, with the power that had been invested in him by Haman himself, and he killed out, uh, he, killed, he, killed, he hung Haman on the tree, So this is the whole way he demonstrates that every single step of the Megillah, from the very first Pasuk in, in, in Parakalif, each thing was there to make the nace possible, to put the nace into effect, to put the Yeshua into effect before the Yisrael even sinned, and before, certainly before Yisrael had before the Gezerah happened, and then how each successive thing that happened was just closing, circling the, the, the noose around Haman's neck until finally he was uh, taken from power and destroyed. Okay.